Hey everybody, welcome to Infused Church Online. My name is Taylor, I'm one of the pastors here. Today we're in part two of our series, Modern Love, and we're going to be talking about how you feel and why it feels so bad when someone doesn't tell you the truth and what we individually can do about it. I'm so glad that you're here. So anyways, we're in a series uh, called Modern Love. We're like over halfway because it's only a three-part series. In fact, next week, um, we're going to have uh, a guest here, uh, someone that uh, if you've been here for a while, you haven't heard from in a long time, like two plus years. Um, and so they're going to be here with a really powerful message uh, about uh, a kind of a perspective on modern love and how we could do that better. Uh, and then the next Sunday, um, uh, Stephanie's going to be back again, I know, twice in one year, um, disproves, I think, what she started her message with was that I only let her preach once a year, which is terribly untrue. Um, she's going to preach twice this year. So that's my wife, by the way. And so anyways, um, she'll be back and she's going to be kicking off a new series um, called Future Five. where We're going to be talking about how you can set yourself up so that five years from now, you are going to be where you want to be, or maybe more importantly, where God wants you to be. And then also we're going to talk about us as a church and where we want to be. And a little spoiler alert or a little secret, um, you are not going to want to miss any of the Sundays uh, in this series, um, because pretty much for the whole month of March through this series, every Sunday, um, someone is going to be sharing their story, uh, whether it be through baptism or um, one of the things we're launching in March, our online campus, um, which is why there's a lot more going on in the back if you didn't notice that on your way in. So we're really excited about that. That's what's coming up. Now, we started this uh, series with the idea that in modern love, there's some topics that I think, um, not because we intended it, we just kind of, kind of fell into it, where we have lost some of the most valuable parts of love, and we're missing them. And last week, we talked about um, this, that we are living in a time in which, uh, uh, living in a time of convenience, um, not commitment, that we resist commitment, uh, maybe not so much because we made a conscious decision to resist commitment, but I think um, just as much to blame as just we're kind of culturally in a, in a season of, of not committing to do things because everything that we have, um, we're sold on the lack of commitment in things, whether it be free returns, 30-day money-back guarantee, no money down, no contracts, all that kind of stuff, I think lends itself to us forgetting that there are areas in our lives where commitment is important. Not all commitment is bad, but because all the world around us is tending more towards convenience than anything else, I think it's kind of seeped into our relationships, into love, and we resist the idea of actually finding and committing to something um, in love, wherever that is. And we talked about last week how um, that commitment undergirds everything in our relationships, that no matter what, the most important thing is commitment, that we can disagree on something, but we're not going to uh, erode away or compromise our commitment. We can negotiate even on some things, but we are committed to each other nonetheless, whether that be in our dating lives, whether that be in our finances, parenting, commitment undergirds all of that. And specifically, we learned last week um, that we always aren't the best at this. We looked at a 1,000-year history. It was a lot in one Sunday that, uh, that really told us this. We aren't as committed to God as we should be, but God, for thousands and thousands of years, has been always committed to his people. He is always there. And we didn't just make this up. We looked over a thousand-year history, and we looked at all these different authors tell us the story time and time again, where they freely admitted, hey, we messed up, and we messed up big. 
Yet God always came and had our back. He never left us. He was always there even when we were even in time out. That we have done a lot of bad things, but God has always, excuse me, been there. And then we as a as Christians, we get the opportunity to see God's commitment firsthand, um, especially if you lived 2,000 years ago, when Jesus came to earth, because as Christians, we believe Jesus was God. So in other words, God came along and said, I'm going to put a little skin in the game. And that is a a true form of commitment that's so unique um, to religions today and even in the past that God actually came down to show his commitment to his people, his love for us. And so we unpacked that last week. Now today, okay, and and I don't know if this is just because I was like, I'm going in the season or maybe because of kind of the the climate of of the Western world, specifically the United States today. Um, I don't know where this kind of came from, but but when I thought about love and modern love and some of the things that we're missing in it, my biggest concern, one of my biggest concerns, I should say, is that we, it feels like at least, that we're lacking this. We're lacking truth in our modern versions of love. That, that we are tending to avoid in our relationships having an honest dialogue, a truthful dialogue, then we are just walking away. It's just a lot easier to do that. It, and even on ourselves, when we look at ourselves in the mirror, it's easier to walk away than, than to be honest with ourselves. And some of you, um, in fact, I, I'm really sensitive to this. I think it's part, part of my personality. Um, but um, when you're around people, and maybe, maybe you've noticed this too, and like you have someone in your life um, who's like notoriously late, they're always late, and then they show up, and then everybody in the room's like, and they walk in, they're like, sorry, we're late, you know, blah, 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 this came up. And then everybody in the room's like, oh, no, it's fine. And you're thinking to yourself, no, it's not fine. You're 30 minutes late. We had to rearrange the whole schedule because of your tardiness. Or maybe you've been at the drive-thru recently or, or a restaurant, right, and they forgot something or they didn't do something per your order, okay? And then they come and they say, then they apologize, and they're maybe even really genuine about it. And you say, oh, it's okay. But it's not okay, is it? Like if you're really honest with yourself, you're, you're kind of miffed that they forgot, um, you know, the pickles on your Chick-fil-A sandwich or whatever it is, okay? Like that really bothered you. You asked for extra pickles and they only gave you the one that they normally give you. And it's frustrating, okay? And, and I just think it's kind of interesting that, that we will say out loud, it's okay, when obviously it's not okay. Because just a second ago, we were using really strong, uh, questionable language to describe how frustrated we were. But then when the person shows up and we're face-to-face with them, we say, it's okay, so why is that? Why is it that we, we avoid that truth? And, and what are the implications of that? I think um, especially among uh, our friendships maybe that we have uh, or our neighbors or even our coworkers, uh, we tend to do this. Uh, we tend to look at their problems and we know that they're problems or we tend to even look at our own problems and, and we see it for what it is, but not a single person in that room will say it for what it is. Everybody knows that person is a workaholic and their family is suffering because of that, but nobody's going to say it. Everybody sees that there's a drinking problem, but nobody's going to just fess up to it and be honest with it and sit down and love and, and talk about it. 
That person has money issues. It's really obvious, but shh, don't anybody tell them that they have money issues. And isn't that strange? Now, I don't know if this is how you were raised, but I remember there was a point in elementary school where I was introduced to this, the white lie. Okay? And, and the definition of a white lie is a harmless or trivial lie, especially one told to avoid hurting someone else's feelings. And I remember when I heard this for the first time, I thought to myself, wow, not only would it be fun to just lie because everybody else lies, and so this is an excuse to lie because that's what you think in elementary school, but also this is a lie that makes people feel better. This avoids hurting people, and hurting people is bad, right? You're taught, taught that as, as a young child. And so this is an okay lie until I became an adult. And now as an adult, this is the question I keep wondering. Is it about their feelings and hurting their feelings that I tell the white lie? Or is it me avoiding the discomfort of telling them the truth? And is that white lie really helping them or is it just making it easier for me? Is the motivation not to tell the truth more about me than it is them? It's really just selfish more than it is helping them. Now, I'm not saying to leave today, because I know some of us may go there, leave today and it's like, well, you just have to tell the honest truth every single time there's something that comes up and, and you just, you know, go around and just as blunt or as painful as that truth may be, you just have to, you know, let them have it. Okay, that would be hypocritical for me to do as a pastor, because for a pastor or for those people who consider themselves Jesus followers, Jesus had this amazing ability as the Son of God, I think, where he was the fullness of both. And I've sh shared this verse. We talked about this verse a lot, but it's a really important verse. We're not going to camp out on it very long because I've talked about it at least three times. Um, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father. And he wasn't just the balance between grace and truth. He was the fullness of grace and truth. That Jesus emulated this perfect fullness of both grace and both truth. Truth says, truth says that was a lie. Grace says, I forgive you. Truth says that outfit is horrendous. Grace says, you be you. Truth says that's road rage. And you're going to get somebody hurt. And Grace says, well, it's probably an emergency. That's why they flashed their lights, honked, and lane changed about two seconds before they rear-ended me. That's, that's Grace. That's an extreme amount of Grace, by the way. Okay. That's the, that's the balance. And Jesus wasn't the balance. Jesus was both of those. He, he would call sin for sin, and then he forgave it, and he paid for it, and he died for it. He did both perfectly. And if you read through the life of Jesus, as I'm really going to encourage you to do so today, you will find over and over again, Jesus put the truth out there. He said it how it was, but he also extended the fullness of grace when he did. I think we're in a modern time. We're in a time when modern love has stopped pursuing truth. Because it's easier to do the whole grace thing, isn't it? It's easier just to give somebody the pass than it is to be honest about the truth. And I'm not saying just to throw truth out there. I, I use this phrase 
very intentionally to pursue the truth. In other other words, it may take time for you to discover the truth. It may be something that you do together with your spouse or your family or your friends that we're not just going to just throw truth out there and best of luck with that. We're going to pursue it together. We're going to be uh, inquisitive. We're going to be curious. We're going to engage with truth. We're going to pursue it. That's the kind of truth we're talking about today. And to kind of illustrate this, I wanted to give you an example. And it's a, it's a very um, recent example. Last week, um, it's with my, me and my two-year-old daughter. Um, every Thursday and Friday, I watch them. And so Ellie and I, I think Everly, our youngest four-month-old, was sleeping at the time. And so Ellie and I were sitting and we were playing Play-Doh. Okay, very exciting Play-Doh. And uh, I noticed on the floor at her little uh, table, on the floor was a little bit of Play-Doh. And it's really important, and, and if you have Play-Doh, you teach your kids that you have to make sure the Play-Doh gets put away because otherwise it dries out and that's just sad. And so I saw the bit of Play-Doh on the ground and I said, Elia, two-year-old, okay, just turned two-year-old, I said, Elia, what do you think we should do about that Play-Doh that's on the ground? And I kid you not, she looked at it, she thought about it, and she said, pick it up. And I was like, wow, not only was like the first time I've ever heard you use those words before, but you conceptually understood what you were supposed to do. That's incredible. And she went over and she picked it up and she, you know, continued to play with it. And I thought, that's, that's so impressive. Hour later, we're eating and she has a glass of milk, okay, open glass of milk. And for whatever reason, she's just gotten into this thing. She looks at me, glass of milk, and she just pours the whole thing out onto the floor, okay? Spill milk all over the floor, okay. Now, immediately, your reaction is to be upset, okay? But she's two. So what do you do with a brand new two-year-old when they take their glass and they pour their milk all over the floor? You clean it up, right? Because she's adorable. And she's cute. And she uses words that just melt your heart. Like, love you. And push. Okay? That when you get home and she's so excited, Dad, and she runs to you and she gives you a big old hug, okay? And the other day she started twirling her dress. I don't know where she learned it. Definitely wasn't from me. And, and it's just so adorable. And so, of course, at two years old, parents, you clean, you just clean up the milk and you say, don't do it again, please. You don't explain that whole thing, right? But I want you to consider what I considered as I was sitting there trying to decide what we were going to do about the milk. Because I think... I think the truth is she knew what she did because just an hour earlier, I said, what do we do about the Play-Doh? And she said, we pick it up and she cleaned it up. That's the truth. And if I wouldn't have taken that second, I would have just cleaned it up as most of us just do. But the truth is if I would have cleaned it up, it wouldn't have made a huge deal in the long run. I realize that. But it reinforces a lesson that says at an early age when she's trying to learn all these concepts that other people should clean up my messes. That's what she would have learned. Is that what I taught her? No. I said, Elia, I'm sorry, and it makes me sad that you decided to pour your milk out. Now we're going to clean it up. And we walked over and got a towel, and I made her clean it up. Now, I realize for some of you, you're like, wow, Taylor, that's a little extreme. Like, she's two, okay? Okay, well, when would be a good time for her to learn it? Four? Fifteen? 
Or can we just be honest something about something? Is you probably know people in your life that you are wishing their parents would have taught them at two to clean up their own messes. In fact, I think part of those people who struggle to clean up and take responsibility for their decisions and the consequences of their decisions wish their parents would have reinforced this idea at the age of two. Truth is, life has choices and consequences. She can spill all she wants, but she will have to take responsibility for the mess and cleaning it up. Because love, my love for her, pursues truth. Now, did I help her clean it up? Yes, she's two people. Did it, do I model it now? Am I intentional? If I make a mess, I make a deal of it. And I say, oh, Elliot, data made a mess. Data enjoys cleaning up and taking responsibility for messes. Do I do that? Yeah. And that's the challenge of love. Love takes works, friends. Love takes work. It's not easy. The easy thing to do is just to clean it up and move on. But then I think it steals something away from my daughter when I do that. The truth is, I think it takes away from her an opportunity to learn a reality that is and will be her life for the rest of time long after I'm gone. And my love for her is so deep that that means, if it means starting at two, we'll start at two. She's not alone. And let's be honest, does she felt, did she feel any less loved because Dada made her clean up her own mess and cleaned it up with her? Probably not. In fact, she probably had fun doing it with Dada. And so that's what I hope that you would consider is that love pursues truth, that when it comes to your life and your relationships and what you love, the things you love the most, that you would pursue truth, even if it means having to change your priorities, your job schedule, what you read, what you don't read, how you spend your time, because your ultimate goal is to say, hey, what is the best for my kids? Not what would look best for me, but what is best for my kids. That's what I want. What is true in this situation? What is really the ethical thing to do? Because my friends, I think anything less than this is a cost that is way too high. And we're not going to get it right every time we believe in an imperfect people, okay, that, that we are imperfect people, but we should pursue it. Because it's more, the cost I think is higher than just an unethical decision. I think the cost is higher than it's just it's bad. I think the cost is higher than just, well, we missed some opportunities. My issue with it is something so much more significant. I think the cost of it is so much more significant than we even give it credit for. And the reason that I say that is because Jesus said that. Because Jesus said that anything less than truth is a real, real problem. And Jesus talked about that specifically in John um, chapter 8. And in John chapter 8, um, there is this issue uh, that's debated. And the issue in John chapter 8 is the discussion of who Jesus is. Okay? And in that, we can glean some truths. And the truths are that the cost of lies and the cost of anything less than truth is just too high a cost. And John chapter 8 uh, is a very heavy, heavy chapter of the Bible. So if you go home and read it today, which I hope you will, recognize that this, this, and you'll find it actually because we're going to read part of it today, it's intense. Like Jesus, this is not a moment where Jesus holds back. This is heavy, heavy stuff. 
So to set this up, there's three parties going on happening in this, um, three groups of people, I should say, not three parties, but three groups of people in this chapter that are having this debate. On one hand, you got some people who believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is the Messiah, He is who He says He is. You got one group who are the religious leaders who say Jesus is not who He says He is. Jesus is a fraud. Jesus is a criminal. Jesus is speaking blasphemy and heresy and everything in between. Okay, all this stuff. And then you just had Jesus who is trying to tell everybody that He really was the Son of God. And they're having this debate and it gets intense. And so if you leave today feeling a little bit overwhelmed about what Jesus says, okay, I just encourage you to stew on it over the next 24 hours because I think you'll find as you lay in bed tonight or get up in the morning driving to work, I think you'll find that Jesus kind of does have a really good point. And this is really how it plays out in our lives. So here's how the story uh, begins. Jesus, in this point, is addressing the religious leaders. That's who he's talking to, okay? So here's what he says, and here's the debate about truth. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, because they claimed that Abraham was their father, if you hear last week, you realize that was a very significant statement. They're like, we're from uh, from Abraham. In other words, we grew up on the right side of the tracks. We, We were born into the best family, okay? They know, if anybody knows, they know the truth kind of thing. If, you, if God were your father, you would love me, for I have come from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. So Jesus is just establishing his claim that he is from God. Okay? Story goes on. Why is my language not clear to you? Rhetorical question. Because you are unable to hear what I say. And most of us have experienced something like this, especially if we're having a dialogue about what is true, especially if you're having a political dialogue, I think, these days, is that you can say really whatever you want to say. But the person that's hearing it, just it's as if they don't even process what you said. It's as if what you say doesn't even matter. They've decided before you even open their mouth what truth is, and nothing is going to change their mind. It's as if they're deaf. In fact, Jesus uses that language. And then Jesus, as he begins to just really throw down some serious shade on the religious leaders, here's what he said. You belong to your father, the devil. Try that Monday morning, okay? Go to your boss, go to somebody that's really upsetting you and just say, you belong to your father, the devil, and walk away. And you want to carry out your father's desire. So essentially, Jesus just called them uh, like devil worshipers, okay? So pretty, pretty extreme, shots fired, so to speak, okay? And so essentially... Couple things to take away from this. Um, devil, we've talked about devil before. Um, devil, the literal word um, devil in Greek, because the New Testament's written Greek, the word there is adversary. So, it's, in other words, the adversary, this thing that works against us constantly. And to some of us would say, well, is there really a devil, Taylor? I'm just saying Jesus thought, Jesus said so, that there is a devil, that there is an adversary, okay? And this is kind of important because the greatest tool of the adversary is not a pitchfork, it's not horns, and it's not a red cape. It is so much more sinister than that. It's deceit. It's lies. That's what Jesus is about to say. He said, the reason you can't see truth is because all you are hearing are lies and you cannot escape 
the lies. And if you want to learn more about kind of how this works, um, there's a really good book called The Screw Tape Letters. Screw Tape Letters by C.S. Lewis, the guy who wa- uh, wrote Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe. Uh, an incredible guy, incredible story of how he, he came to, to faith in Jesus. And it's actually free. The Screw Tape Letters is free on YouTube. You just audio uh, listen to it. It's like three hours long. And it's how the adversary works. It's a fictional story about how, how it works. It's very interesting. But you see throughout it just how wily and deceptive things can get and how it really can undermine in powerful ways relationships and how it can distract from the truth. And Jesus is saying, this is what's happening here. His strong words continue as he, as he goes on um, talking to the, to the religious leaders. He said, he, the devil, was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language. In other words, his language is just lies. There's no truth that is spoken out of his mouth, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now, this is heavy. I recognize that, especially to like go out the gun and say, and he was a murderer from the beginning. But I want you to think about something. When, when truth fails in your personal lives, when, when you have a relationship or conversation and you're like, I, I know we talked about some things, but what you told me, I'm pretty sure half of them were like lies or like 75% of them or 25% of them were lies. It wasn't a full truth. Doesn't that feel like you've lost something? That something in that relationship has died. At the very least, your trust in that person. Isn't that true that you walk away not feeling filled from that conversation, but feeling like you've lost something? Something has gone away that will be very difficult to get back. It's just like snuffed out. That life itself, life, like life includes like potential, hope, love, forgiveness, mercy. Those are things that bring life to us or renew life or restore life are gone. That when you tell that white lie, you walk away maybe for a moment feeling good because you didn't have to tell the truth. But underneath it all, you're kind of like, I feel like we've lost something there. It's because you did. It's because something died, because you weren't able to reconcile. In fact, you have relationships that are still not reconciled, and they hurt you when you think about them. It hurts you here. It feels like something is gone that will never come back. Jesus isn't just saying this to be dramatic, He's saying it because it's real, because it hurts. My experience so far, just in pastoring, okay, just in life, is that hurt surrounds areas of our lives where the pursuit of truth has been avoided the most. That if you look into your heart, you look into your relationships where truth has been avoided, the pursuit of it has been avoided the most, that will also be the place where you hurt the most. That your parents, your parents didn't pursue truth when it came to raising you. They could have learned different ways. They could have asserted themselves. They could have gone to counseling. They could have worked it out, whatever that may be, but they didn't. And that has had lasting consequences in your life. How you treat your spouse and the fact that you are not able to come together and have an honest conversation about honest things and be honest with each other is costing you. It's hurting you. 
Jesus would say it's killing parts of your relationship that will be very difficult to get back. Maybe you're raising your kids in a way out of your own insecurities and your own family of origin issues more than you are in the love and the truth that you're capable of that, that is the love and the truth of God. To me, my opinion, this is too high of a cost. I think that's Jesus' point is that this is too high of a cost for us to pay. And the solution is right there. It's never gone anywhere. In fact, we know it. There's a part of our heart, I think it's just the image of God, the, the creator's image in our lives that says, the answer's right there. You've just been walking away from it for a decade. You haven't pursued it. And it's hurting you and it's hurting others. And I realize for some of you, it's like, yeah, but Taylor, if I, if I, if I tell the truth, it's just going to cause too much hurt. At this point, it's just too far gone because to, to bring up the truth, it's going to cause more hurt than the hurt that's already there. Just want you to consider, <clears throat> is the hurt that's caused by telling the truth because of the truth, or is it because of the lies that have so built up over so many years? It's easy to walk away from the truth in a moment, but that builds. It's just a slow drip that over time gets so overwhelming, we can't do anything about it because we know it will almost hurt too much. My guess is you know where those hurts are in your heart and in the hearts of those you love the most. It's where you're avoiding it because to go there it's so unknown and so almost frightening, you don't want to touch it. But my hope is, not that you would just take your finger on and put it down on the truth right on day one. My hope is that you would not avoid it anymore and you would do the opposite, that you would pursue it. In as many ways are you are capable of, with all the resources and abilities that you have, especially living in a first world country, and all the opportunity that we have. And to be aware that going forward, that this needs to draw your attention. That there is a, possibly a connection between this hurt that's in here and a lack of truth somewhere in a relationship or in your life. <clears throat> so what do we do? Well, what we do is uh, we pursue truth. Um, and, it, and not just like start telling the truth, because if we want to just start telling the truth, we could have done that like last year, Okay but we still tell little white lies and we still say it's okay when it's not okay. We, we, we're going to we keep doing that. We'll continue to do that. I don't think we can just tomorrow just start saying, well, I'm just going to live a more truthful life and it work out longer than a week. My encouragement is this right here, what Jesus says. To the Jews who believed in him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, Jesus' teaching, in other words, what comes from God, because Jesus is God, and he and God, he and the Father are one, he says, you are really my disciples. Then you will know truth, and very famous verse, and the truth will set you free. I think the better option for you and for me is to follow Jesus. And I'm not trying to just sound like a broken record because every Sunday I get up here and the answer, and we already know it, Taylor, is Jesus. Okay, I'm not trying to be predictable here. 
I'm just saying that when you follow Jesus, you learn things, you grow, you're challenged to confront the areas of your life that hurt the most, that you resist the most, and, and engage with them. Engage with them. Just think about this. Just make it even really simple for a second. Just follow my teaching. Follow Jesus' teachings. Just do that for like a month. Just open, um, you know, like the, the first part of Matthew, like chapter 5, 6, 7, uh, and the Beatitudes, um, which is the Sermon on the Mount and what Jesus tells us that we should do kind of his greatest hits. Just read through those and do that for a month. I bet you, bet you $100. Let's make it real. Let's put some steak down. I bet you, you get to the end of that month, you will feel more free. Because that's what following Jesus does. You will have less regret. You will have a better life. You will have more life. Just try it. And tell me if I'm wrong. I'm open to it. I'm okay, very comfortable pursuing truth. Because I've done it for a lot of my life. I remember when this statement, Jesus is truth, was a real struggle for me. And I remember sitting down with a college professor of mine at Iowa State, and uh, he was a Christian and an elder in a church, and, uh, and so I wanted to talk to him because I was an agnostic at the time. I didn't, wasn't sure exactly where God fit and if he was Christian or not. And I sat down and I said, uh, I, I brought up all these reasons, and one of them I said, you know, like, I just don't think the Bible's real, and I don't think what the Bible says is, is authentic and true. And he just looked at me and he said, have you read it? No, I haven't read it. Don't you think you should start there? That, that maybe you're judging a man before you've even gotten to know him? I mean, maybe. That, that maybe you just open up the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four counts of Jesus' life, and just get to know Jesus, and then decide for yourself if what he says is true and how he lives is true. And I, I realized me at that time would have said, yeah, but <clears throat> there's a lot of harsh stuff in the Bible. Like the, like the verses we just went through, this is just like harsh. And Jesus kind of goes around sometimes and calls people uh, sinners. And I don't want to be called a sinner. That's really uncomfortable with me. But let's, let's pursue the truth for a second. Wouldn't every good parent call a sinner a sinner? Translate a different way. When your kids miss the mark with you, and your relationship with them, do you not tell them and call them out for it and say, hey, you messed up? If you don't, you need to. Because that's what love does. And any good heavenly father would look at their earthly children and say, listen, I'm not saying this to make you feel like you're the worst and to devalue you. No, 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 I'm not, in the, I'm not devaluing you. I'm just calling it for what it is. And you missed the mark with me. You missed the mark with my perfect self. In other words, you sinned. But the, the unique thing about Jesus is Jesus called sin, sin, and then he paid for it. Truth and grace. That's love at perfection. But you had to start with the truth. Because when you can call it for what it is and say, you know what, I, I messed up. That is a really freeing experience. When you can receive forgiveness from someone else, that is an exceptionally freeing 
experience. Just as it is to experience the love of God and the forgiveness of God is a very freeing experience. And the benefits of Jesus, Jesus' truth brings so many things. Stability, I don't know about you, but I just feel like in this season of our, uh, our nation, of our world, it just feels very unstable that in the midst of the instability, we can have a very stable view of truth, what truth is and what really matters. Jesus brings that, that we can put our values, our priorities, our faith into It's powerful. I just notice that we tend to see things, see truth through our own lens, through whether it be our family of origin, our personal goals, our plans, our priorities. A politician, as of late, we tend to see truth through the lens of those things. And those truths will only take you as far as those goals or those politicians ever will. But this truth is eternal. This will be the same truth as it is today, as it is 60 years from now, as it will be for your kids when you're gone. The Jesus filter forces us to see differently and to change. I just believe that truth, whether you're a Jesus follower or not, this is just a truth truth. Truth is the ignition for transformation. Without it, transformation will never fully happen. They'll never change. If you just tell your kid every time they go past the speed limit or make a bad decision or or something like that, and you just say, oh, don't worry about it, don't worry about it, don't worry about it, will they ever change? Of course not. You have to bring truth to the table as well. In in March, when you hear people's stories, or anytime we have a baptism story, March 1st, we're going to have a baptism. And there's, there's always this phrase in the baptism videos, in the, in the decisions to follow Jesus. And it's a phrase of like, I, I finally realized, I came to terms with, I decided that how I was living, I couldn't continue anymore. I came to a truth that it wasn't, I couldn't do it anymore. And I needed somebody else to guide my life, to give me the truth that I was trying to figure out on my own that I kept falling short of. Jesus brings that truth. Not in anger, not in meanness or an intention to hurt and cause pain, but in love. Love pursues truth. That's what love does. In my view, I love Elia too much to clean up her messes. Love her too much to do that. And I think it makes it too much about me. And so I love her enough to help her to understand the realities of life, that you, what you reap, you sow. If you make a mess, you need to take responsibility because nobody else will, at least not for a long time, and your life will always be unstable. We're going to pursue truth together even at a young age of two. It feels dramatic, but you also know it's true, and you know the repercussions at 20, at 30, at 40 if you don't get it right. That's the value of truth. I'm not saying, as I said at the beginning, I'm not saying leave today and just be a truth machine and just truth, 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 truth. Because I think a lot of that just comes from a motivation of anger and fear. The motivator for the pursuit of truth is love. I love you too much not to become better myself, not to look at myself in the mirror, not to go to counseling, not to ask the hard questions, not to ask for forgiveness, 
not to extend forgiveness. After all, my friends, that's what God did for us. He loved us even in our depths of brokenness. He loves us now, just as he's loved us for thousands and thousands of years. That's our model. And he came to show it through Jesus, through love. And he invites us to pursue it. And I promise you, your life will be much more free if you do. Bow your heads, pray with me. Heavenly Father, in just a few minutes, we're, we're all going to walk out here. Some of us are going to go to meetings and pick up our kids, go shopping, and just go on with our lives. We're going to pursue our to-do lists. We're going to pursue our hopes. We're going to pursue our dreams and expectations and all those things. Lord, my ask of you, my invitation for everyone in this room to ask of you is that we would pursue you. We would pursue truth. That we wouldn't shy away from it when it gets tough. We would invest in it as, as if it was one of the most important things that we can do in our lives. And Lord, as we pursue it, help us to recognize, realize, and experience the freedom, even in some of the pain that we have to go through to get there, but the freedom that we get to experience when we reach that truth. The truth of your love for us, the truth of years of bad decisions, sinful decisions that we've made, that we would just come to truth and be set free by it. That you are a God not here to harm us, to shame us, or to value us, but that you are a God who loves us so much to desire freedom for our hearts and our lives and those around us. Help us to pursue truth and not shy away from it. Give us the people and the relationships that we need in our lives to live that out. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us today. I hope you will leave today feeling encouraged and challenged to pursue truth because that's what love does. And it's so powerful and so transformative when we choose to pursue love. And that's my hope and prayer for you this week. And maybe for some of you this entire year, that needs to be your focus. That needs to be your prayer. Thanks so much for being here. We'll see you next Sunday.